Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast series that dials in on some of the basic tenets, principles, and overall ideas of Army Doctrine. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and today I'm talking with the Executive Director of the Center of Military History, Mr. Charles Bowery. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks for having me, Nikki. So a little bit of caution for the audience today on our topic before we get started. Uh, To break this down very simply, there are two sides to the Center of Military History. Um, There's the historian side, and then there's the museum side. And we're going to focus today on the historian side and how that contributes to our current and future doctrine. And it's not that we're ignoring the museum people, uh, the curation, the archival staffs that are helping to tell the Army story through our material culture, but this could quickly become like a four-hour podcast, and that kind of airtime would make all the other centers of excellence very jealous. So uh, also, for the record, I I just have to state right off the bat, I've worked with Mr. Bowery before. Uh, He was once Colonel Bowery, Apache pilot extraordinaire, and uh, he used to write doctrine, too, for the Aviation Center. So uh, I think without further ado... Let's go ahead and get started. First of all, we're going to discuss the center's contribution to Army doctrine. And I think, though, it would probably help our audiences to understand a little more about what the Army Historical Program is and uh, where the Center of Military History fits into it. So this begins with the Army Historical Program. And I kind of want to know what that is. And I think our audience really wants to know what is CMH's role in that program, sir? Sure. It's a good place to start. The Army has approximately 550 historians, roundabout. That's a combination of military and civilian personnel, and another 150 or so military personnel serving in military history detachments. Army historians work in two broad environments. They either teach history in an educational setting, So we're talking about ROTC or West Point pre-commissioning. We're talking about professional military education, and we're talking about training courses. Or they work as what I call institutional historians, providing staff support in the form of historical products and services. The Combined Arms Center, where you are, has representatives of both of those communities. Historians teach classes in CGSC and SAMS on the educational side, and historians write and publish historical products as well as running the Frontier Army Museum and serving as the CAC historian's office. So that's on the institutional side. CMH, my organization, is part of the Army Historical Program in that it provides historical staff support to Headquarters Department of the Army, publishes the annual DA Historical Summary, and manages the Army's museums, including the National Museum. So... Along with this, all of those responsibilities for a massive organization that really contributes quite a bit. Um, you also were the the weighty role of the chief of military history. Can you can you talk a little bit about what that is, what that entails? Because it sounds awesome and pretty pretty big too. Yeah, I think I have probably one of the most fun jobs in the federal government. If I would, uh, to be honest, uh, my role as the chief of military history is in effect to serve as the Army senior historian and to synchronize the activities of all Army historians, museum professionals, and archivists while advocating for their work at the Army headquarters level. So I'm an SES, Senior Executive Service, and I work as a staff subordinate uh, of the Training and Doctrine Command now. 
uh, I have two forums to help me carry out this synergy and advocacy because I want to make it clear that that number I quoted earlier, the 550 number, only a portion of those folks actually work for CMH. Lots of the Army's historians work for other commands, and so they have they carry out the missions and priorities of their command while doing work of a historical nature. So my job is to synergize and advocate for them. The Department of the Army Historical Advisory Subcommittee, or DAHAS, is part of the federally chartered Army Education Committee. And it's composed of a cohort of prominent civilian academic military historians, representatives of the TRADOC leadership, the Army War College, West Point, and the Center of Military History. The DAHAS meets annually to evaluate the Army's historical programs and submits a written evaluation of the program to the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, who chairs the Army Education Committee. Internally to the Army, we have what's called the Military History Coordinating Committee, and that's composed of representatives of all of the ACOMs, the direct reporting units like West Point and the War College, and CMH, all of which have historians who work for them as a part of their staffs. And we meet annually to discuss how we can best synchronize our, our operations uh, and support one another. And then last of all, I, my direct role as a part of the the Army Historical Program is just to answer questions that senior leaders have about historical matters within the Army, but then to highlight the great work that all of these folks who do in their separate commands to support their commands. And here's an example just from the last 48 hours. So I had an Army senior leader contact me uh, and ask whether CMH could pull together from the period uh, after 1973 just some of the statements and guidance that Army senior leaders gave to the Army regarding the Army's withdrawal from Vietnam and the fall of Saigon in 1975, because obviously that's of interest at this time, and our leaders would like to gain some perspective on how leaders in the 70s communicated these events, which were very similar to the fall of Kabul and Afghanistan, uh, to what went on in Vietnam. And so they were looking for that perspective uh, just to help them shape their communications with the force. And so that is a pretty good example of what I do on a daily basis in as, in that role as the chief of military history. So can we also, I, like I said, I didn't want to get too far into into the museum side of the house, but I know that there are several other agencies that that start to fall under CMH and that architecture. What about What about those organizations as well? Sure. And this is where some of the confusion comes in. So I get questions all the time from Army leaders uh, that that usually begin with, uh, I love your facility up at Carlisle Barracks, because they confuse our organization with the Army Heritage and Education Center, which is a part of the Army War College up at Carlisle Barracks. Because a lot of our senior leaders took history classes as a part of the Army War College. They know the history professors there. And they make an assumption that if you're a senior Army historian working for the Army, you must work for the Army War College. So, so part of my role is to, is to explain the difference in our, in our operations. But CMH as an organization has four directorates. And these are GS-15 level directorates that work here at the center. Uh, our history's directorate researches, writes, and publishes Army official history publications, so books and short studies on, on topics in Army history. Our field programs and historical services directorate provides rapid turn research and writing support to headquarters department of the Army. 
It manages the Army Lineage and Honors programs. Uh, it manages the five X-ray ASI, which officers can get for having a history degree and attending the elective at CGSC. Uh, it manages uh, or it supports HQDA force management decisions that have lineage lineage uh, implications, i.e., when a unit activates or inactivates or realigned, we will go back into the Army's inventory of old historic unit lineages and we will use the combat arms regimental system to guide what we name units. And so CMH doesn't make those decisions, but they provide the historical staff advice on the most appropriate lineages to use for those units. We also provide reachback support to command historians across the Army, and we serve as the proponent for the military history detachment program. Uh, and then the other two, which we weren't going to talk about, but I'll mention, our museums directorate manages and operates the Army's museums, and then the National Museum of the U.S. Army staff operates the National Museum, and they're a directorate of CMH. So other organizations that employ historians, as we said, AHEC, the Army War College, CGSC, SAMS, Army University Press, the Army Command, or the Army Command Headquarters, so the four ACOM headquarters and unit headquarters, don't work for CMH and they don't report to us, but uh, the Army Historical Program seeks to synergize their activities at the DA level. I really wanted to dig into, you mentioned command historians, and I think the command historians, the, the military history detachments, those, those organizations are usually where the first time where somebody down at a unit level ever gets an interaction with the historians. Can you, can you kind of talk through what is a command historian? And how do they work within CMH's architecture, but also within the historical program in their own units? Sure. The, there's a, there's a, a lot of good news and, and some not so good news in the story of how the Army has command historians. And I, and I wrote about this in an article I wrote in Military Review last December about Army historical programs. Uh, and I began the article by, by stating that the Army is very comfortable with historians in a classroom setting. Mm -hmm. So all of us took history classes as a part of PME and the career course and CGSC, SAMS, et cetera. So we know how to utilize historical information and historians in the classroom setting, but the Army is much less comfortable with command historians in a staff setting or an operational setting. Uh, and, and for that reason, uh, those positions have really atrophied in the Army over the last few years. So when you're at the ACOM level, so we're talking about Forcecom, Futures Command, uh, AMC, and TRADOC, uh, at the ACOM level, the Army has very robust command history programs. So all of the ACOMs have historical offices of multiple historians who do their staff work for them, their staff historical support, write their annual summaries, et cetera. But when you start getting down to the ASCC level, so like U U.S. Army Pacific, USARA, uh, Eighth Army in Korea, uh, the historians start to become a little more sparse. And then when you get to the core and division levels, they disappear altogether. Uh, that is because uh, these positions uh, have primarily in the past been civilian positions, which are very hard to maintain in operational level units. And they are generally the first thing on the one to end list to be cut when a when a staffing cut is made in an operational headquarters or when a trade has to be made to fill another capability. 
the command historian position is usually eliminated first. Uh, that is unfortunately a product of, in many cases, uh, historians have struggled to maintain credibility as a staff officer and to demonstrate their value to the command. But in many cases, they had commanders or leaders who really didn't understand why they needed a historian. And so they made, uh, you know, they made a resourcing decision that that requirement was less important than some other requirement. And so they eliminate these, these positions over time. But this, this is like a, a self-reinforcing cycle of doom because when you eliminate the positions, then you go without them for long stretches of time and you get used to not having one. So it seems like you never had one. And so it becomes almost impossible to reinsert historians into operational units because there's there's no perceived need for them. And so uh, that's kind of the Army's checkered history with maintaining command historian positions. But our doctrine tells us and our policy tells us that units at uh, two-star level and above will have a command historian. So uh, that's what our regulation 870-5 says. But uh, that historian is responsible for two main functions. Number one, they maintain a historical file for the organization that is composed of records like orders, policy documents, exords, uh, strategy documents that document the Army's or the, the unit's activities over time, command biographies, uh, after action reports from significant operations or deployments, things like that. So they maintain a historical file. Number two, by regulation, they compose an annual historical summary of their command's activities. This is what the unit did over the last year. And these are archived uh, and they're kept, you know, to answer questions in the future for leaders as they in help in it, and it helps to manage transitions, for example. It helps a new leader coming in to be able to read what the unit had been doing to answer some of those questions. Uh, I said I had two, actually I have three. So the third responsibility is really staff support. So they are generally considered, a historian is generally considered a special staff officer akin to perhaps the, the staff judge advocate or the chaplain or, or one of those folks. And they provide historical expertise and advice. So they can inform professional development programs. They can participate in the MDMP. So a historian is a perfect person to participate in an MDMP or analysis process for a staff or command decision because of the perspective, their writing skills, their communication skills, their research skills, things like that. So they they do those, those are, I would say, are the three big buckets of things that a command historian would do in a in a headquarters. So where do the the military history detachments that you talked about, where do they fit into the picture? They are supposed to be really a complementary system. And so uh, the military history detachments have a history of their own, actually. Uh, and it starts in 1944. So in the aftermath of D-Day, the, the landings in Normandy, the Army began sending small detachments of what they called at the time combat historians into theater to begin conducting oral history interviews of troops. 
Uh, and so as they rotated off a line, they would go to a rest area and they would be interviewed about their experiences. And the Army began compiling these interviews as primary source documents describing combat. And they began to use them in quick turn doctrine development. So uh, the the uh, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces began using those combat interviews to inform rapid turn lessons learned publications that they fed back into the training base in the continental United States for units, divisions that were standing up to go into combat. And so the MH, the combat history detachments began doing that. And so people like SLA Marshall and Forrest Pogue were NCOs and officers who served in military history detachments in World War II. And so we began doing that in World War II. We continue doing it in Korea and in Vietnam, and then up to today where uh, military history detachments are MTO units in all three components that exist to deploy to contingency operations wherever the Army is, uh, and they, they do those oral history interviews of commanders and soldiers, but then they also collect documents. So we know we live in an electronic age now, and they uh, will go into uh, a headquarters, a command post, and they will execute what is called a collection plan. And so there, so if, uh, if an MHD is deploying to an operation in the CENTCOM AOR, they're going to be falling in on, for example, uh, a, a core or division headquarters. They will, uh, they will have a collection plan that says, that uh, the Army and then future historians would want these sorts of documents and interviews to inform future doctrine, future decision-making, and future publications. And so we will collect them. We will collect copies of them, uh, like op orders, like uh, CONOPS documents uh, that support missions, that uh, after-action reviews, uh, emails, things like that. They will harvest copies of those documents, and they will fill out a collection plan and transmit them back to uh, to CMH for archiving uh, because they feed into our ability to write official history in future, future years. And so uh, ideally, the way the system sort of is meant to work is that command historians will be complementary of unit historians and they will reinforce each other because a unit historian is, is focused on that particular unit's activities. And in many cases now, the Army doesn't, well, we don't have unit historians in operational units by and large. Uh, and if we do, they are civilians who generally don't deploy. So uh, in now, uh, the, the, the MHDs take on greater importance because in many cases, they're the only people who are sort of charged with, with collecting these primary source documents from operating force actions. Which is... Great. I was actually going to ask whatever happened to the unit historians, but that's it's good to know that despite the fact we've seen, you know, cuts and transitions in personnel, that somehow the Army story is still getting told through the experiences of forces, but also to a certain extent, we're still gathering archival material to help inform, like, I don't know, Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate. That's right. That's right. And so uh, one of the one of the ways we've sought to shape and re-energize the, uh, the Army's official history, operational history programs, really acknowledges that we will probably never return to a scenario where uh, 
where division and core and ASCC headquarters have an actual command historian slot. We, we have to acknowledge that that's probably not going to happen. So what we've done is develop two linked programs to, uh, to recreate this capability. One is the unit historical officer. And so our new version of AR870-5, which is going to get published within the next month, uh, is going to require that units at brigade and below, so brigade and battalion level, maintain an additional duty unit historical officer. And that individual's duties are to assemble a historical file and then to create an annual historical summary. And so we're going to give them tools to do that. We have developed or we're developing with the Combined Arms Center a distance learning course on how to be a UHO that a UHO can just take online. And then we are developing a digital tool set to allow them to basically it's a checklist of these are the documents that go into your historical file. So you go into the tool set, you check them off as you assemble them into the file. And then at the end of the fiscal year, it's unit historical report time. And you can hit compile in the digital tool set. And that that tool will take the documents and build them into an annual historical summary. And uh, I don't know how that works. It's magic, uh, SharePoint magic. But it works, and so we're doing a proof of concept right now with two units, uh, the 25th ID in Hawaii and with three core units at Fort Hood, Texas. But when the system is up and running, uh, a unit his historical officer will be able to contact CMH through our website. They will be given access rights to our CMH SharePoint portal where the tool set resides, and then they'll be able to do that work to assemble the historical report. Now, inside the unit, when the report is done and compiled, uh, the UHO will have the ability to hit print on the report, to print out the document or email it to the commander or the XO for command review. And then they can put their stamp on it and make changes as necessary to update the document before it gets sent forward. And we will compile these at echelon. So at division and core level, uh, they'll get compiled and they'll get moved onward to, to CMH. So ideally, the, the way the system works is that it's sort of a, it's a garbage in, garbage out system, really, for to be candid. So the more UHOs we have, the more input and material we will have, and the better the final picture will be. Uh, and I call it akin to a quilt. So when you, you know, you build a quilt by stitching squares together into the quilt, and all of these different UHO products are squares in that quilt. And so the completeness of the quilt is based on the number of units actually participating in the program. Uh, and I just briefed the PCC this morning about the program, and I told the assembled group that, in my opinion, uh, this could easily be accomplished by an NCO as well. So any competent NCO could easily take on this task. Uh, another technique could be at the unit level for the brigade or battalion S1 shop to function as the UHO, or the PSNCO could do it. Uh, the public affairs officer or NCO could probably do it. Uh, I would submit sort of a caveat to that, that a danger of our program is that commanders frequently think of the unit historian as, uh, as an assistant PAO. So they think their job is to tell stories and make media releases about the unit. Uh, and we, we tend to discourage that because that's not really what a historian does. 
but I'm not going to tell a commander how to complete a requirement. And I think that's a technique as well. Uh, last of all, to try to recreate the capability of unit historical programs, we are working with the Army G357 to assign reservist officers to division and corps headquarters as IMA command historians. So individual mobilization augmentee command historians. Uh, and these are officers who we will help the Army Reserve recruit, train, and assign to units in their geographic footprint. So my hope is that the combination of the UHO, the reserve command historians, and then this effort we have taken in sort of in, in sort of doctrine and professional military publications to advertise the requirements, we will recreate this capability of operational history. That actually sounds almost like it will probably work pretty well. The nice part is with with command history reports, speaking from the perspective of a doctrine writer, having that kind of information really does help benefit us as writers. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about that, about how the work that you guys do folds into, into doctrine land. Um, so you guys are the proponent for your own techniques publication, which is ATP 1-20 Army History Operations, which discusses field history operations and provides the guidance on, on the organizations, the employment of historians. Um, and it's kind of like the techniques for and procedures of, of documentation, recording, preservation, all that kind of good stuff. But your 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 organization's contributions don't stop there. And I know that they go on to cover a myriad of other publications. So what how does it contribute into publications like FM3O, which just went out for, for initial draft staffing today. How does that work? It's it's an interesting question that I'm I'm really glad we got to because uh, this is where uh, some clarification is in order and some perspective uh, on sort of the process of doing history is valuable. So the second most frequent question I get from Army senior leaders about the historical program in the Army is after you're up at Carlisle, right? So the second question I get is, uh, aren't you just doing the same thing as CALL, as the Center for Army Lessons Learned? So let me take a minute and see if I can answer that in a way that is understandable, because it's a, it's an important question. And, and you as a doctrinista can correct me if I'm wrong, but... Uh, my answer starts with the fact that the lessons learned process is sort of a business process. It takes in specific inputs, which are lessons learned regarding tactical operations or proceed or tactics, techniques, and procedures. And it seeks to turn them into direct changes to doctrine and to tactics, techniques, and procedures. So it's how you do a wet gap crossing or how you do mine laying operations or how you execute a deliberate attack or a defense in depth or whatever. The lessons learned process is largely devoid of historical context, right? So historical context is about the why of history, of things. Why things happened. Who did things? What were their motivations? What were they thinking? Why did they make the decisions they made? 
And then why did those decisions have effects and consequences in, in times after that event? So in my mind, history is really about the context. It's all about the context and the why. Uh, lessons learned is about the what and the how. And so those are, those are really uniquely different things. If you were to put them on a Venn diagram, I would say that lessons learned in history would definitely intersect. But the intersection is small and it's about sort of why the what happened is also important about history. So part of history is explaining what happened. But then it goes on to explain why that's critical, why it's important, why it matters, and all those sort of contextual things I talked about. So the danger in considering history in, a, in the context of writing doctrine is that I think the danger becomes viewing historical activities or historical events as a checklist for the future, i.e., uh, the Army did uh, things in World War II large-scale combat operations, ergo, we should do these four things in peer competition in the future because we did them in World War II. So there was a there was a prominent military historian named Jay Lubas back in the 80s and 90s. He wrote the Army War College staff ride guides and all that stuff. Worked at the Army War College for a very long time. He wrote an article in the 90s that cautioned against what he called letting history stand in judgment of doctrine. And he really cautioned the Army that uh, it was important not to become prescriptive in our thinking about history so that you could take historical events and say, this is not only the way we should do it in the future, this is the way it will happen in the future because this is what history says. And that's what I wanna caution against in this context. So then that leads us to, if that's the case, is historical thinking of any value at all in doctrine development? And my answer is a thousand times yes. So history, historical context and historical knowledge I believe is the margin of excellence in doing doctrine because it, it makes you think deeply about why things happened and it makes you, in my opinion, more sophisticated in the doctrine that you produce because it is contextually informed and it's grounded in thinking about, well, maybe just because something happened in the past in that context, maybe that's not the best thing to to put into our doctrine in the future, maybe there's some caution that can come from that sort of process of understanding the context. And it and it may be seen as making doctrine harder, but I think it will make it better uh, because of that sort of contextual awareness. So for all of for all of us doctrine writers out there and all of us Folks who are now interested in participating in, in doctrine refinement with uh, with draft reviews, what are some other publications that your team develops to help feed that hunger for for historical material about how the army has done operations in the past? Right, and so I think you just described it in a much more uh, user friendly way. Is that the fact that uh, it's like that old NBC commercial, uh, like. At the end, it says the more you know and the star goes up. 
which only people of a certain age know, and I'm dating myself by even knowing that what that is. I'm not going to smile because it dates like me. The, right. The, the more you know about history and the more history you read about army operations, it's just undeniable that you will become a more effective doctrine writer or doctrine producer by understanding the past in depth. And so CMH has a ton of publications that will help in that. Uh, one of the most fun and accessible is Army History Magazine. So we publish it every quarter. Uh, it is uh, unique in historical publications because it is footnoted. It is sort of vetted historically by our staff historians. And it is uh, not only attractive and interesting, it has really useful things in it about training and operations. For example, you know, we published uh, an article a couple of issues back about the Army's cold weather training in the United States during World War II. You know, those are things that a training developer could take right now and feed into the training development process. Mm -hmm. And there are just, there are myriad examples of art, how articles in Army History Magazine could be unique sort of short pieces that would help a doctrine or a training developer. Then you go into the, you know, the larger, longer term books that we publish. Uh, and I would say that those are probably the least useful in terms of doctrine development. But what they do give the reader is the deep understanding of the past that, again, I think is there is no question that it makes you a better officer, a better leader, uh, a better doctrine writer, a better instructor to read to that level. But you got to want it pretty bad to read a green book or a longer history book. And I get that. We have lots of shorter books, though, that address discrete topics that would be of incredible use to a doctrine developer. So we have all kinds of publications for, uh, for World War II, Korea, and Vietnam in particular about specific branches and functions that would help a, a, a doctrine writer in any one of them. For example, we have I think three or four separate books about engineers in Vietnam. We have books about public affairs people in Vietnam. We have an entire series called Advice and Support about the advisory effort in Vietnam. Uh, you know, that if I were the commander of an SFAB, I would want all of my leaders to begin reading the Advice and Support volumes about Vietnam. Uh, so we have lots of shorter studies on specific branches, functions, and types of operations. We have a book called The Rucksack War, which is about Army logistics in Grenada, uh, which is fascinating. It's, and it's, an, it's awesome source material for logistics doctrine directors or doctrine writers. Uh, for just does again, just a few examples. And then finally, we have a lot of staff ride material that we publish, guides. Uh, that are useful in a lot of settings for professional development. So I think the short answer is that we have uh, a lot to offer, and all of our publications are available for free download on our website, history.mil. And you can, the, the, the website has a search function that you can search by topic across our publications catalog, and you can get everything we have ever published in PDF on that site. Awesome. I think what we'll do is we'll make sure that the, uh, 
that the in the episode notes for both the podcast, but also in our social media, we'll put that information out there. So that way, our our audience, not only doctor developers, but also anybody who's who's genuinely curious about military history, can go check it out. So now comes the hard part to talk about, which is for those who are not working with an ASI, for those who are not working every single day with military history, what would you advise in order to help those individuals help unit historians and help military history detachments? What would you uh, what would you advise them do and what would you advise commanders to do to prepare for that command history as it comes due every year? Well, I, I think it starts as everything does in the Army with command emphasis and leader emphasis. So we know, you know, that old adage that uh, that a unit does what the leader checks is is 100% true. Uh, and so uh, the first thing that that a leader can do to get this process rolling is to acknowledge in public settings and in orders and in priorities that maintaining the unit's records and historical files is a critical task uh, that someone needs to do. Uh, and uh, you know, there, as I've said in this podcast, there are a lot of tools at their disposal to do it. Uh, so it would, you could start by sort of acknowledging that that's important, but then, you know, pick up a copy of ATP 1-20, which sort of explains really at the granular level how unit history operations work in much more detail than a commander needs, but it would give them that, uh, that background. Uh, and then to look around and decide who your UHO or command historian should be. Uh, pick someone who is interested in doing it. You know, you know, you might start with a, a canvas of the unit to say, you know, what individuals in this command have a his, history degree. Uh, that might be a start. Are you interested in doing this? Uh, it's certainly not a requirement, but uh, but that's a place to start. Uh, but but I think overall it starts with acknowledging that this is important, and then beginning to. Uh, to to build files, to build document records, and then prepare for onboarding a UHO. Awesome. So one last question, and this is is kind of a, a curveball coming off of um, off of we've got a brand new crop of CGSOC students here at Fort Leavenworth. Um, if one of them decides that, hey, I think this this historian thing might be for me, what would be some advice that you'd have to them about about starting that work towards an ASI? Right, well, we have, so first of all, we have also uh, pretty much revised from the ground up the five X-ray ASI. So when you read the old version of 870-5, uh, it says that uh, in order to have the ASI, you have to have a master's degree in history. You have to, and you have to attend A625, which is the elective in CGSC for, uh, for history, for unit history operations. Uh, I don't believe that's a terribly effective way to grow interest in doing history uh, as an Army professional. And so we have sort of revised the program into an apprentice, intermediate, and advanced level. So we're going to say now from going forward that if you have a degree in history, we will give you the 5 X-ray ASI at the apprentice level. And uh, and then we will encourage you maybe to move up in degrees so that if you, on your own time, on your own ability, if you want to get your master's degree uh, in history, if you want to do your MMAS on a history topic, you can apply for and get that intermediate 
ASI 5X. Uh, in the future, if you have the opportunity to go on perhaps to SAMS or to ASP3 and get a PhD in history, you know, then we're going to consider you like the super advanced Jedi Knight 5X-ray ASI. Uh, but what I'm trying to do with this program is to begin to build for the Army a Rolodex of Army historians, of officers with historical training, because I believe those officers are very useful to the Army in a lot of settings, on senior staffs, on joint staffs, uh, in, uh, in sort of one-off assignments with uh, the whole of government, uh, with combined, uh, in combined operations, in senior staffs, uh, as strategists, as 59s, as FA-59s. I think there's a direct linkage between a lot of them. And so I'm trying to use the historian's craft as a way to develop a pipeline of officers who think historically so that they can go on and do things like this uh, and uh, and sort of continue. Because, you know, there are lots of other opportunities that will come their way with those advanced degrees as well. For example, they could teach in CGSC at the DMH, the, De the Department of Military History. They could teach in SAMS. They could uh, teach at West Point as a rotating faculty or as a permanent faculty. There are lots of roads that open up to you when you have an advanced degree you know, in history from an accredited institution. Uh, and so we want to feed that passion for, for, Army, uh, for professional soldiers who have an interest. Well, and if nothing else, more historians equals more history equals better vignettes for my manuals. That's right. More <laughs> historical goodness. Yeah. Well, sir, I can't thank you enough for your insights and for your time today. And even though you're uh, you're all the way over in the East Coast, it's good to actually have a chance to to sit down and talk with somebody who's a history nerd. Thanks for your time. And I just want to encourage everybody to check us out at history.army.mil. Uh, and you can find us and me on all the socials as well. Uh, just search CMH and you'll find us, connect with us, like us, follow us, and get some historical goodness. We'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit the subscribe button on either Apple or Google Podcasts to get new episodes automatically. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at U.S. Army Doctrine for updates from the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate on new episodes, as well as our Doctrine Digest video shorts, audiobooks, and most importantly, new Doctrine. We'll make sure to share all the information about Army History Magazine and the Center for Military History social media in our episode notes and also on our social media as well. And you can check them out for new historical publications, videos, all the information about staff rides and trending information for our historians and our teams out there. Finally, the views and the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.